What's up, everyone? This is Jerry Smith, the Pod and the Pendulum. We have a special episode today, kind of a one-off episode with a uh, returning guest and good buddy, Justin Beam. Uh, we're here to talk Rob Zombie's Three from Hell, which is already a very divisive and very divisive film and has already been a really good conversation starter online and you know elsewhere. So uh, I'm excited for this. Justin, how's it going, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on and doing this. I, I think with the short runtime this thing has in theaters, we're on day two of three right now. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that, that this helps spread the word a little bit more about the film. And I'm looking forward to discussing it. Always down to talk some Rob Zombie. Oh, yeah, me me too. I was at uh, Monster Palooza this weekend and ran into Richard Brake. I was talking, oh. to, him about, talking to him about the film for a while. Uh, probably a good 10, 15 minutes. And it, it seems like this is the film where even the actors are just getting so involved with trying to get as many people into seats as possible. Yeah. And, you know, right, rightfully so. I mean, I just, I love the movie. You know, I, I had seen it a couple times for, you know, writing purposes or interview interviewing purposes. And I, I loved it right from the beginning. And seeing it on the big screen last night was just so interesting. It's probably one of my favorite experiences watching a zombie film. You saw it last night too, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. I saw it. I didn't have screener access or anything like that beforehand. But I know I remember you posting and kind of trying to dance around what film it was. But you're like, there's this amazing movie. You guys are going to love it. And I really want to talk about it. All I can say is, God, it was good. And I would, and it seemed like day after day, you know, with that embargo on it, it just like was more and more painful for you to not it, talk about this thing. Well, it was because when I got sent the film, uh, you know, because they they asked me to interview Break and Mosley, and I was so excited. They and they said, you know, we'll send you a screener, but you are an, under no circumstances allowed to review it because of this. And I was just like, okay, I'll respect that, but I don't get why. And I watched it, and you know, I enjoyed it so much that it's just like. Oh, it's painful not to talk about this movie. And I did, yeah. I did go online and say stuff like, "Oh, you guys are gonna love this movie," which is interesting because you know, since watching it last night, it seems like a lot of people do not love that movie. <laughs> and I, I've even gotten a couple people like, "What were you thinking?" And when I posted that originally a, a few weeks ago about loving the movie, I got a message, and I won't name who it was, but it's, it was, it was a filmmaker. I got a message saying, "Okay, Jerry, like you're joking, right?" Like. No, why? And he's like, well, I saw it too with a bunch of journalists, and we think it's the worst studio film of the last 15 years. Wow. And like, I was so interested in why people would just have such venom from the movie, because to be honest, I kind of think it's one of his least – I mean, don't get me wrong. It's an offensive movie. You know, anything involving those characters is going to be. But yeah. I, I don't think it's as offensive or kind of – you know, morally gray, I guess, as Rejects was. Yeah, I don't understand why they would say it's the worst film of the... I mean, gosh, what a strong statement to make about any movie. And I'm, I'm here's when you go to see these things, it's not just about the Firefly family. And if you're talking genre cinema, you're talking exploitation films, mm-hmm. bad people are bad people. Yeah. Bad, pe- bad people are shitty. And they're going to say things that are shitty. And that's because that's part of them. There's no PC element to Charles Manson flapping his gums when he would be on camera. You know, mm-hmm. you can't. And, and also, this is something, I mean, I know that 
I've seen some criticism of dialogue and things like that. But you got to think too. These, if you look at even the real world of serial killers, most of them are not bright people. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that they do it is horrific enough. But the conversations they have, they're not going to be, they're not, they're not going to be having long soliloquies about cerebral whatever. I mean, it's going to be practical, very simple discussion in a lot of cases. And there's not going to be an organized plan for everything they do. If that, in the world of true crime, there are very few who ever actually had a solid plan in place. And the reason we know about them is because they ultimately get caught. So, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I think that it's that realism that Rob remains grounded in that maybe some people have a hard time with when they're approaching this kind of subject matter. But I don't understand why a movie like, oh man, I mean, I don't know. What do you, do you think that maybe a lot of what's coming out of at least larger studios or like from name directors and entities, do you think it is a little more sanitized now than it used to be? Because I go to lots of independent film festivals and things, and Mm -hmm. I see a lot of great raw, what some people would find to be offensive, but the point isn't to be offended or offensive. I mean, the point is to experience it and let it impact you however it will. But I, do you think that, the larger scale pictures that people are used to going to the multiplex for are probably a little more sanitized than, than what may have been out there historically. Is that why this reaction would happen? I I think that, and I also think it's because of it being 2019. I mean, I have nothing but a tremendous amount of respect towards things like the me too movement or times up or things like that. You know, I'm, I'm most definitely an ally to that. Uh, with that being said, I feel like a lot of movies that were would be that viewers would be able to dissect and look at with a uh, with the lens in a in a different way in the past. Maybe people are uh, exceptionally hard on now. Like I feel like it, I to be honest, I feel like the same people who are ragging on Three from Hell but are saying Devil's Rejects is the greatest thing ever. I feel like if Devil's Rejects was released today, those same same people would be really pissed off and upset. And the thing is, like, I understand some arguments. Like last night, I got into a, a pretty passionate argument with a friend of mine online uh, that he he was saying that he was so offended by three from hell because it makes these people into heroes and you're supposed to root for them. I don't think you are. I, I never considered any of the firefly mem- members heroes. They're disgusting people doing disgusting things, but it's a film. It's a fictional film about these things. And it's most definitely an exploitation film, you know? And when you when you watch these stories, I mean, those people, they're despicable people, but they are going to do some things that will make you laugh from time to time. That doesn't make you a bad person or make them heroes. And I think that that's one of the biggest complaints that I've read so far is that, in their opinion, Three from Hell makes Otis, Baby, and now Foxy into these kind of like heroes, you know, like telling jokes and that kind of stuff, and you're supposed to root for them. But to be honest, I mean – isn't that what the film's about? Even from that opening scene where it kind of touches on what natural born killers did with kind of the media making these people martyrs, making these people kind of like huge superstars, you know, like Charles Manson was never a hero, but he was very enthralling to watch. And I feel like that that's what really stands out about a lot of zombies films for me 
is he takes these awful people and puts a like kind of like a uh, a human light on them to to watch what they go through. I think you're exactly right. There's no reason that that they should be presented in any other way. So mm-hmm. the way that I see this movie, and I got into a discussion with my buddy who I went with last night. We talked for quite a bit about it afterwards too, because he didn't really care for it. But I'm like, mm-hmm. this. Okay, in terms of the conflicted folks on the celebration or sort of making heroes out of the Firefly family, I I remember sitting in the theater at the end of Devil's Rejects and Freebird is playing. We got that slow motion and it felt like a sad moment. Like the way Rob is presenting it was like we were losing our our heroes here. But I didn't really feel like that at any other point in in any of these films. And... Mm -hmm. So I walked out of uh, Rejects going like, oh man, I am a little conflicted on if they, you know, that presentation of that, but it's simply a way to show what happened to them. Because these movies, you're following the creatures. And this goes back to what I've said a lot of times to people about Rob's Halloween films, in particular Halloween 2, which which I think Halloween 2 is Rob Zombie's best movie so far. Uh And he spends he invests in something in his movies that a lot of filmmakers don't and that is to you're spending the time with the monster cuz he grew up loving the monster he grew up obsessed with creatures and doing his own art all of his albums his artwork in him is just full of frankenstein and everything else his stage show he has literal monsters on stage with him so he mm-hmm. loves the he loves the beast and so he chooses to have his movies by and large made where you're spending time with them. And that's his forte. When you're with Mm -hmm. terrible people, you're going to see them doing terrible things. There's going to be some levity, but ultimately all that matters is the truth in the character. And if he were to, if he were to make you hate them too, too much, or if he were to change the way that he approached them, I just don't think these, I, I don't know what the point of the movies would be in that case. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the criticism comes not only from it being a Rob Zombie film, but also with it being firmly placed in reality? I mean, I, I was having this discussion last night where people like I, the the individual that was talking about how you know he felt wrong laughing at at, at these people, these horrific people, and it's just like. Did you ever laugh at Freddy Krueger who molested and killed children? Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, I can't think of another pop culture icon. Like, it feels weird that I grew up with Freddy Krueger posters and lunchboxes and pull string toys. You know, that was a child murderer. Like, we give that a pass, but we can't watch the these films about these horrific people doing these things. I mean, it, and I don't think... To be honest, I, I never root for the Firefly family. I'm just along for the ride watching it. And, yeah. and what's interesting is my favorite character in Free From Hell isn't even a member of the family. It's Poncho Moller's Sebastian character. Mm, interesting. And and what's what the first thing that really stood out about Three From Hell to me right from the beginning was it feels it it feels very much like an extension uh of Devil's Rejects, but in yes. a way it feels like a more refined and subtle version of that at times. You know, there there are a lot of quiet, introspective moments. I mean, I don't want to spoil things, but I mean, there's a death of a character 
that you would, if you hear it on paper or you read it on paper, you would think it would be this big bombastic thing, but a character passes away and it's almost not even, it's kind of casually mentioned. It's very soft. It's very subtle. And right from the beginning, like I, I remember even pausing the screener I got at that moment and saying like, what? Like, this is interesting. Is this how this film's going to go? And it did. I mean, there's moments like like the moment in the uh, kind of motel in Mexico where uh, Baby and Otis are kind of talking about, you know, their life and, you know, missing a character and so on. And there's these very quiet moments where you see these monsters kind of think about life and where it's going and where they've been and kind of – it, it kind of feels like that scene in uh, The Last House on the Left where after Krug kills Mary mm-hmm. and these people have done these awful things, they're just kind of looking at themselves yeah. kind of kind of sad and embarrassed that this is what they do. That's my and favorite there's, there's, scene in that film, yeah. Dude, right? It's 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 so good. And like with Three from Hell, there's that scene in the motel that I'm speaking of where it's just like they're kind of lamenting a lot of their life. And it's like, that's, that's one of the things I love about this movie. You know, a big argument about zombies films that I've heard so much. And I agree to a certain extent is that sometimes I think he's hindered by being mostly a visual filmmaker. And I mean, I love his films, but I think the visual aspects is where he succeeds. And in the past, I mean, I, in the past, I agree that maybe the screenwriting element hasn't been as strong as the others. But with Three from Hell, I think it's finally when Rob Zombie is becoming an all-around just master at what he does. The writing is brilliant in this movie. It's humorous. There are sides of these characters that we see that we previously hadn't seen. I think even the small kind of cameo-filled roles are memorable and I, I feel like there's stuff in Three from Hell that was in previous films that, you know, that you have that awful, hard to watch scene in Devil's Rejects in the motel with Otis right. and uh, I forgot the character's name, but you know, with the gun and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to watch. I mean, if, if anyone saw Thirty Days in Hell, the making of Devil's Rejects, even Bill Mosley had a hard time filming that scene. Yeah, you know, and and that that's been a big part of Rob's kind of films. I mean, I'm not saying that he likes doing rape in films. I mean, nobody likes that, but it's something that shocks people. And it's also something that makes people examine their feelings about such atrocious things where there it's only insinuated in three from hell, you know? And it's just like, I, I saw that scene, you know, it's kind of the aftermath of these awful things. And it's just like, Oh, Rob kind of dialed it back for this movie in some ways. And I appreciate it even more so for that. Yeah, I think no to the point of the humor, nobody, none of us are one thing. We are all many things. We all, you know, we're a, a hybrid of emotions and we have happy moments and sad moments. And so if you're gonna spend 90 minutes with people documenting days and days of their lives, there's gonna be a variety of emotion that's going to come and go in that time to just make them one note would be absolutely boring. If you know, that's the challenge. The one scene in one of his films that I agree with critics on, on not caring for is at the beginning of Rob's Halloween, the first one in the kitchen mm-hmm. where, I mean, it's, it's just so unrelentingly horrible and unnatural. I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I mean, it's, it's not, a fun scene to watch at all. 
Mm-hmm. And it and it doesn't seem like two people who would even be in the same space together because she's strong, he's strong. It's not, it's clear that he's not like over her in that sequence. In a lot of situations, you would have one person overpowering another or clearly the dominant one. But in that case, I mean, they were both on equal footing. So I'm like, she's such a badass. Why, why would she even be with this guy? And, and William's just so over the top in that. But um, a lot, again, I'm going to point to Rob being a fan of realism. And just like he has Michael unshaven, living like a transient because he would be in barns and things like that unclean not a pure white mask that he's dusting off and mm-hmm. you no know, every day the, the reality of these situations is that they're they're horrific and what do a lot of serial killers do what do a lot of mass murderers do i guess serial killers more to the point a, a lot of times sexual assaults involved with that and his dialogue is not above the sort of mental pay grade, I guess you'd say, of most serial killers in this. So there aren't a lot of... I mean, the, the quiet moments with them are, are just as important as the action moments because they're trying to figure out as, as they go. They're flying by the seat of their pants. And that one scene that you're talking about is one of my favorites in this movie where Baby asked that question. And Otis, he... he he kind of does hesitate, you know, the way that, that Bill played that scene, the way they both did, I thought was just really perfect. And it pulled them out of their own sort of mania for a moment. And then they had to slide right back into it again. And I love mm-hmm. that because that that's real life. That's real. And these people are being presented as real. They're not superhuman strength and all the rest of the things that we're used to in a lot of horror. Mm-hmm. My when favorite. The, oh, no, go, no, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, you're probably going on a better uh, thing. I, I was going to lead into a different question. Yeah, but no, feel free. My favorite character, and I think this entire movie is carried by Sherry. And I think oh, she's I, great. I think that this is baby's film. And for the critics of Sherry over the years, um, I really hope that they that they open up to this. Because one of the things that she's had in the past in, in these movies is she has little moments. She has some, you know, I mean, she's a part of all of it, but really Otis was always the most vocal and her, you know, I mean, this movie is on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning, she is absolutely intriguing on screen. And the presentation of her in prison in her current state of mind and she plays it so well and it has enough of this sort of cute mad element cute and mad mixed with a definite dark undertone there and the way that she transitions back and forth and the time that we get to spend with her is really really rare this is also something and i'm sorry for keep pointing back to halloween i'm not comparing movie to movie to movie i'm just saying within rob's catalog one of the things that he did like in halloween 2 for example is the the very rare thing of allowing an audience to see and experience the grief of the characters hereditary Mm -hmm. does this too you most movies in horror especially it's a kill and then on to the next kill Mm -hmm. on to the next You, you very rarely get those moments where you get to see the people who are having to deal with this afterwards actually dealing with it as opposed to just sort of like, we just need to survive tonight. But Rob's Halloween 2 is ultimately all about 
post-traumatic stress. It's all about loss and having to confront demons, not just Michael. I mean, Lori in that movie, Scout, is absolutely fantastic. And what she has to do, but you're, you, he takes you into the therapy session. He has those moments where she's kind of, a, you know, her friends are like overwhelmed with how she is. And beyond that, into Michael's head, you're just seeing so much depth in the experience of loss in these things. So I, I don't know why more filmmakers don't take that kind of consideration I think it's the kind of thing that Starfish does too, that it, where mm-hmm. you really ruminate on what lo- how loss resonates with people and what it really means, not just body count. And mm-hmm. in, in this one, the, you get to see Baby in prison, but it's not exploitive. And you get to see a little bit inside of her head, but you see those sort of waves of change that she's capable of at this point. And I think that sets it up really, that's a really important setup for what's to come. But the interplay with her and D Wallace in there and all that is so interesting. And I love that, that Rob gives us all of that time with her because Sherry just steals this movie. Well, I, I also feel, and you know, I skirted around it at first, but you know, I figure to have a good conversation, just go all in. So if anyone hasn't seen three from hell and you care about spoilers, maybe pause this until you have, but I'm just going to go into it. Uh, Devil's rejects to me very much was, the Firefly group in their prime, you know, like they, that is where they were just firing at all cylinders when it came to who they were three from hell. One of the many things I just adore about the film is it's about kind of the end of the road for everyone. That's what it feels like, Mm -hmm. you know, captain Spalding, he dies the very beginning and it's almost like he's come to terms with it. You know, and you get you get so many of these introspective moments to where like they Otis and Baby know that. I mean, they make excuses saying you know they could kind of create more havoc. Yeah, they, they have it in them, but there is that uncertainty of like, okay, is this kind of our last? You know, our last go at the rodeo. Right. You know, Baby Baby has that thing where she's kind of mourning the death the death of Spalding. You know, her father, and they and she mentions that like everyone's gone at this point. Yeah. You know, everyone except those two, you know, tiny, you know, uh, you know, Who she brings up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think the film, which is weird because I mean, I never would have thought a film from the Firefly family would be like that, but it's very much another film from Rob that is about loss. Yep. You know, it's just like you said, the monsters, it's about what the monsters have lost. It's about the effects of living that life has had on them. I mean, baby, She's broken in prison, you know, mentally, you know, in some ways, physically, you know, she's, she's definitely as arrogant as ever as she, you know, as she previously was. But at the same time you see, I mean, even Otis mentions that she's changed. Yeah, he does. You know, and, and while at first we're, we're set to believe that that change is, is for the worst as the film goes on, especially that finale, Baby is very much the one leading that stuff. You know, Otis has that big fight at the end, but Baby is the one that, I mean, she puts on that headdress, grabs that bow and arrow, and she just goes for it. She's the one that's kind of like the Otis in Rejects, but in Three from Hell, it's Baby. Mm-hmm. And and those moments, those moments to where all these characters that we've seen in House or Rejects are referenced 
even at the smallest thing, you know, like it, it kind of brings it full circle to you where you're seeing the effects of those first two films and that lifestyle has had on them. This, this probably is, and this is what I love about the end. And again, more spoilers. I love that there wasn't an ending like rejects to where we're set to believe that, you know, they, they die. I love mm-hmm. that they just walk off because you don't know if it's the last time that they, you know, the last kind of adventure, quote unquote, you know, or, or, you know, they still have more to do. But in a lot of ways, I feel like that is a very good ending for those characters. That if this is the last film that we ever see with those characters, I'm good with that. Because, you know, the, the future is always uncertain in life. And I, I think that that kind of ending is something that I latch on to more. This kind of uncertainty of what's next. And we get so many moments in the film where Baby and Otis – I mean, Otis is always the one that has the plan – and there's that moment in the in the motel in Three from Hell where Otis is like, I didn't even think we'd make it this far. You know, that that is the leader, you know, the self-proclaimed leader in all the movies, not knowing what the hell he's going to do next. And I, I think seeing those sides of those characters that we we think that we've known in different ways might turn some people off. You know, the fact that, that Spalding just kind of quietly goes at the beginning. Or that baby's more in charge. Otis doesn't know what he's doing. And I, I've read criticism saying that even the characters say that they don't know where the direction's going to go, you know, as a negative thing. And I think that that all speaks on great writing from Rob, you know, like giving us sides of these characters that we wouldn't expect. Hear me out on this. I am a huge fan of the, and I did a really big article for uh, Famous Monsters years ago, which. Um, on this, the Creature from the Black Lagoon series, three films. Mm-hmm. I think, and they were sort of they were they were the last, the last embers in the fire, the once brilliant fire of the Universal Monster Cycle, and so a lot of people, uh, you know, might have not caught them or dismissed them, but the way that I look at those three films is that it's a perfect arc. It's an accidental arc. Of course, they weren't all written at the same time, but this is my analogy to the Firefly story. With Creature from the Black Lagoon, humans enter his space, they sort of invade it, and he has to fight them off. In uh, Revenge of the Creature, they, they go and they actually capture him, like they remove him from his environment, and they try to cage him, and they prod and poke at him and use him for experiments and all this conflicting shit. All he wants to do is get home. And when he, when he goes on his little rampage, it isn't really as much of a rampage as it is just trying to get out of there and get back to where he needs to be. And then by the time you get creature walks among us, the third one, he has been, they, they go again and remove him from his environment. There's the, the accident with the fire that burns off his gills and they realize that he can breathe on land uh, so he can no longer survive in the water. They have, him, they have him cooped up in this cage. He, again, you know, he takes interest in this woman, but it's really almost like a passing interest because for him, his world is lost at this point. And he's like, I have been through so much. And what I think is the most poignant moment in any of the Universal films and maybe in all of monster cinema at the end of the third creature from the Black Lagoon film, the monster commits suicide. Mm-hmm. 
the last, the very last shot of that is him exhausted, walking to the beach, heading toward the water as the credits start to roll. And he knows he's not going to survive what's going to happen next. And the audience is forced to say farewell to the beast, right? So mm-hmm. look at the Firefly family, House of a Thousand Corpses. They are 100% in their element. They own that the all of the area around their home, those roads, how they capture people, the museum that draws people in, mm-hmm. everything, they are all exactly where they need to be. So it's like if there was a habitat that a certain species needed to exist in for the Firefly family, that home, that area, that museum, all of this, that was their habitat. In Rejects, they're removed from that. They're forced to be removed from it. So now they're out they're, and, and they're doing what they can like they're kind of surviving, but in a way they're losing their grip on who they are and what they are. And that's how everything ends up falling apart and they end up getting blown away at the end of it. They aren't where they need to be. And as an extension and following, touching back to the creature from the Black Lagoon, when you look at Three from Hell, they have escaped the cage, but they have no home. Mm-hmm. And so now they, d- and they don't know where to go because they, this is completely foreign to them. Not only have they been removed soci- from society for a long time, but every ounce of whatever they were once grounded in, in that habitat in that first film is now absent a hundred percent, not to mention a bunch of family members falling off in the meantime. And so when they're out there, they're going to be fumbling around. They're going to fuck up. They're going to get surprised in hotel rooms they're gonna they're not gonna have a plan because there is no plan. When they lived at home, they had a plan. These movies eroded the quote unquote plan over the course of the three running times, and by the end of this one, they're still just sort of trying to figure out what the hell's gonna happen next. And I think it's a perfect way to do it instead of having it end in some operatic death scene or something like that, because in real life, this is exactly what would happen. So them walking away at the end of that film isn't them walking to their death like in the third creature film, but in a way it's them. I mean, they have accepted the fact that they have no fucking clue what the world has in store for them or what's going to happen next. So mm-hmm. anyway, that that's what I was, when I walked out of the theater, that's the first thing that occurred to me is like, this seems like a very clear three P three part act, you know, three act story over the course of these films for these people being extricated for what really matters and forced into a life that's completely new to them. You know, what's, what's interesting is when the film was uh, originally announced three from hell, I was pretty bummed about it, to be honest. I, I you know, I was, I didn't think that there was a point, uh, you know, I thought rejects wrapped it up very well. You know, it seemed like Rob was just kind of going back to the well, in my opinion, but what we got I think is, and I, I've, I already know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. What we got in my opinion was a better ending for them. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I told Richard break that this last weekend when I saw him, you know, yeah. I told him, I told him devil's rejects is one of my favorite movies. I mean, I have an entire chess piece with those characters, you know, mm-hmm. forever on my skin. Yeah. But three from hell. I, I liked it so much more for, for, I don't know, maybe it's personal reasons or maybe it just resonated with me for in, in ways that rejects did, but not as much. And, you know, even he was taken back by this, like, wait, you like three from hell more. Yeah, I did. You know, because I liked that they were out of their element, you know, mm-hmm. in rejects, they were having so much fun just being vile in three yeah. from hell. 
and three from hell, they are sloppy and they make so many mistakes that could potentially end the whole story for them. Right. You know, Otis sending Jeff Daniel Phillips character to get baby and waiting at that house. There is, I mean, I, first time I saw it, I said, that is the worst mistake someone could do is trust that one person to go do that mm-hmm. when a whole Calvary could show up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, like that or baby stabbing that woman to death in the middle of the day while that older woman's watching. There's so many mistakes because they are out of their element. They're right. not those sadistic people who had everything planned. And I liked a film that through those characters that were once arrogant and cocky and thought they had it all figured out into this existence of having to fight for their lives and having to fight to escape themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's very interesting to shine a light on horrific people going through those same stories. I, and I, you know, I, I somewhat take offense to people saying that like, these are supposed to be the heroes. They're never the heroes. It's just, you know, I, I think good cinema is good cinema, you know, and, and I, I do think it is entertaining and not fun per se, but really interesting to take that ride with antagonists for a change. Right. I mean, going back to like Breaking Bad, even a, a show like Breaking Bad, Walter White starts as a protagonist. And by the end of the show, he's very much an antagonist. He's a an horrible mm. person. Yeah. But how many of us, wa- how many millions of us watched that show and wanted to see that descent, you know? And, and I think that is, I, I think Rob Zombie is so talented at giving us a look at, those antagonists in ways that other people would shy away from. I agree. I absolutely agree. He has, and also he has a palette that he uses because that's his palette. A lot of the criticism that's been thrown his way over the years is, Oh, he writes all this fuck this fuck, fuck, fuck dialogue. And he can't write dialogue and he just writes these redneck kind of hillbilly. Well, you know what? This is the world that he wants to work in. This is the world where he feels inspired Beyond that, all the years of criticism of Sherry being in all of his movies. Well, what the fuck do you think Scorsese does? Mm-hmm. Didn't they just announce a new movie with Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro? I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's okay. But we look at this and, oh, no. Tarantino does it, but we look at Rob, oh, no. How dare he? And, I mean, it's like, if you're an artist, you need to work with the things that inspire you and the people that inspire you. There's a guy who's writing a book about Rob's films. It's, it's almost finished and really exhaustive exploration of it. And he and I had a very long conversation for it. And I reiterated the fact that not only is Rob doing what he does best, he's doing what he, I mean, you can't expect something outside of the realm of what he normally creates, but also... Mm-hmm these people have been given second wind in their careers because of him. He continues to bring people like D Wallace to the screen, Clint Howard. How happy were you to see Clint Howard in this movie as the clown? That scene, like, uh, man, I don't know if it was meant to be played as humorous. It was, I think as it, it was. was, but Oh my God, I don't remember laughing as hard as I did watching that scene. And <laughs> you know, last night, last night in the theater, the third time seeing it. And I think I laughed just as hard as the first. It is so awkward. (laughs) This guy's about to get killed and he's doing everything he can to make them laugh, but it's just bombing. 
so bad. And oh my, there's there's humor in Three from Hell. I, I think there's there's been humor in all of Rob's work, but I I think that you can tell that he's having fun with this one, you know. And like, see, I liked Thirty One. You know, I, I got a lot of a lot of shit for that. Uh, you know, it was on my top ten of the year when I wrote for Fangoria, mm-hmm. and I got letters saying that I should quit writing entirely for like in yeah. thirty one. But you could tell that. even Rob had a hard time making that movie. You know, yeah. Three from Hell I think is the return of Rob just having fun again. You know, and it's those characters that we've all missed. They're yeah. horrible people, but we've all missed them. So I, I think getting one more story from them, I could forgive the fact that they were shot twenty some times, you know. And I, I almost love, I almost love that about Rob. For me, Halloween two, what it was to me, and you know, I'm not the biggest fan of it. I, 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 it, I still, all these years later, I still can't wrap my head around it. I keep trying, okay, but I can't. But with that being said, one thing I do love about it, it seems like everything people griped about the first film it seemed like he amplified with the second movie. And it is one of Rob Zombie's films, Halloween 2, that feels like, you know, he said, you know what? I'm not going to tie myself to Carpenter's film with this one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make 100% my movie. And I yeah. appreciate that about that movie. And I feel like Three from Hell is a return to that. I'm going to make the film I want to make with these characters. And I'm and all these people are going to ask me these questions, how they survived. Well, you know what? I'm going to explain it in about 10 seconds and then move on. I love I think, that. I think Lords of Salem is an extension of that too. Mm-hmm. I think that it seemed like Halloween two was his was Rob like getting settled into uh, a, a pure creative vision. And if you want to, the story behind the making of that film is absolutely crazy. And I have two. I have a huge interview with him in Scream magazine mm-hmm. that that covers from A to Z the entire experience it actually ran over two issues an issue 53 and 54. And it got the cover in 53, which I'll say the least obvious thing to happen in 2019 <laughs> is for Halloween two to get the cover of any magazine. I, I was so thrilled. And Rob was blown away. He's like, what we got the cover. I'm like, yeah. He's like, Oh my God. Like, we were both just like, what the fuck? And cool. yeah, it's wild. But so what I see as beginning in Halloween two extended into Lords of Salem. And now I think he, cause he continues to sort of refine what he's doing, which is natural. That's what any filmmaker is going to be going through. But the nightmares of making the two Halloween films were, were so bad for him. I, I think that that may be why he's doing these things on a more independent level now, which same thing was said of Carpenter. Carpenter was miserable working within the studio system. Memoirs of an Invisible Man made him, he told me, literally want to quit making movies. Not just because Chevy Chase was such an asshole, but which the stories about Chevy Chase on that are legendary, but, mm-hmm. um, but because it was just such a terrible experience and, and he kept having, it was just issue after issue. And so he returns to a more indie thing with something like Christine getting into, you know, with the, everything beyond that. He was happy again. And I think Rob is very happy with where he is right now. Between his music, this new album is supposed to be amazing. John 5 says it's like the heaviest thing Rob's ever done. Rob's touring. He and Sherry are in a good place in terms of where they live. And I mean, I just, I agree with you. And I think that a happy artist, or at least 
an artist in its in, in his environment is going to deliver pure material and love what they're doing instead of it being kind of like a job. And mm-hmm. this movie, this movie here, to those who criticize it for being meandering, well, it really is to me like the, all those '70s road movies. And there were so many movies throughout the '70s and '80s that were just pedestrian in structure, meaning a day in the life of, or a couple days in the life of. And I love that. I, I think that it's, it doesn't need to be a perfect structure or, the, or a common structure to be a satisfying experience as an audience member. In mm-hmm. fact, there's a lot of movies I love, especially like Franco and Jean Roland and all these other people who make movies that are heavily criticized for lacking story. That doesn't matter to me. I want mood. I want, I want to feel things. I want to experience things. I want stimulating visuals. I want, I, if it's sexy lighting, I could buy into a film for that. I like some movies just for their score. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons why we invest in this stuff, and it doesn't need to be cookie cutter to satisfy everyone. So this is not a movie for everyone, and that's perfectly fucking okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I appreciate the, the films of John Cassavetti so much, mm-hmm. is that for me, it's more about being a fly on the wall and watching these the way that people interact with each other. I've yeah. always found that very enthralling. That's my favorite thing. I mean, my two favorite filmmakers, John Carpenter and John Cassavetes, which are very different, but I mean, that's kind of my sensibility, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like Rob, especially with this film, I mean, three are... Lords of Salem, I think, will always be my favorite film of his. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a weird experience seeing that movie to where I was just like, wow. Like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, it, it feels so European. Yeah. You know? And, like, yeah. I would never expect this. Absolutely. You know, but Three three from Hell, it, I think it was such a breath of fresh air when it comes to, to Rob making movies again for me. You know? Like... His his films have always been very hit or miss for me. I'll either really love one or I just won't really like it much. You know, that seems like to be I the was, experience in general, don't you think? Like for most people, he's a he. It's hot or cold. Oh no, definitely. I mean, I didn't watch Rejects for about I think maybe a year after it came out because I just didn't like House of a Thousand Corpses at all. Uh, you know, I've grown to appreciate it, but when it first came out, I, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. But when I saw Rejects, I was like, wow, that's so different. And so it, it you know. That uh, wasn't a big fan of Halloween. Halloween 2, like, I, I liked it, but I just don't know how I feel about it. You know, Lords of Salem, loved with a passion. 31, enjoyed it. This one, it's just, it feels, it feels like it's the, uh, like, everything that he got right in previous films in spades. Uh, that, and one thing I've always appreciated about his work is he gives actors roles that you wouldn't necessarily think that they would fill. You know, you think of Dot Marie Jones and you think of the PE teacher in Glee, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and her role in Three from Hell is pretty brutal for that scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or uh, I mean, Clint Howard, it, it's great in it. Daniel Roebuck is so much fun to watch in any Rob Zombie movie. In any movie, you know? period. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. But like I said earlier, the role that just stood out so much is Poncho Muller as Sebastian, because in a lot of ways, people say, oh, you know, Three from Hell is just a rehash of Rejects. And I guess in some ways, Sebastian could be the uh, Charlie Altamont character in some ways, you know, but the difference is 
Sebastian is not a great character at all. He has a good heart from the first scene he's in up until, you know, the last scene he's in. Right. And it's it's interesting that Rob wrote a character that is just so inherently good. Mm-hmm. You know, good and so like, you know, I struggle with depression very badly. And there's the scene in that film between Sherry and Poncho. And she says that, you know, he reminds her of her brother Tiny. Yeah. And being a small person, there's a look on Poncho's face as Sebastian to where he instantly thinks he's about to be the punchline. And what I loved about that scene, it has so much heart. And to be honest, I think it's the one scene in Rob Zombie's films that has the most heart. That And she tells him all that stuff about, you know, no, no, not – basically alluding to not because of his size, but because Tiny was considered a monster, but he had such a great heart, you know? Yeah. And it's like – Moments like that are moments where, you know, baby's talking about Spalding. Those are moments that are so unexpected that I feel like that's something that Rob should be celebrated for. Mm-hmm. He made a film about disgusting people, but has so much just beautiful heart in it. And I think that that's where a lot of people are going wrong because they're expecting they're expecting rejects. And I understand that same characters, but this is – it's an extension of Rejects, definitely. But it is also – it's very much its own thing and a really good continuation and a different look at every one of those characters. Don't you think that a lot of people could be just better about allowing films to exist and acknowledging the fact that their expectations if, – if they're let down by something, that's on them, not the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I don't well, – You would think – Right. You, you, Rob's movies are all distinct in many ways. There are some common threads, but there are some common elements, but each one is its own thing. And the three films in the Firefly trilogy are all different. So anyone walking in expecting rejects, well, why didn't you expect Thousand Corpses? Like, if that's the case, just, just, you're not there for a meditation on what came before you're not there having handed him a checklist of things that you need out of these movies and then making sure that he delivers on them you're there to take in what he has decided to hand you Mm -hmm. and 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 that's that so expectation and film are just two things that i really struggle with because i think expectation is it's one of those things that's really unfair for any artist. I know it's natural for people to have expectations for things, but I think that, I mean, you can't, you really can't hold someone guilty for not satisfying what you need out of something and And in in entertainment. And there's this expectation from everyone that they have to be pleased. And it's it's that lack of, it's that lack of understanding. A lot of times I get a lot of shit for just, being a ride or die fan of a lot of franchises, you know, yes, I didn't like Jason takes Manhattan. Jason goes to hell, you know, wasn't a fan. I am in no way a fan of Halloween six or resurrection, but with that being said, I will see every single sequel to those movies because my expectation, like I have none. I just enjoy, I enjoy these movies. And even if the one before disappointed me very much that's not the filmmaker's fault 
the movie just didn't work for me. You know, I like that, you know, I, like I said, I was not bummed, but I was just kind of taken back when three from hell was announced. Cause I was just thinking like, well, I don't see the point, but the more I thought about it, it's just like, but I am getting really excited with the possibility of seeing these characters again. You know, he he had that little video intro before this one. And I know that the screening that's on the second day tonight is going to have a a Q and a thing afterwards too. But he talked about the fact that initially he really didn't want to do this, but over the years he started to feel like I miss these characters. And it was a similar thing on Halloween two and how that whole thing came about was because that was something that he didn't want to do. He had no intention. In fact, he was in, development on Tyrannosaurus Rex, the boxing movie with Tyler and, God, and then that whole, that Oh, I know, I know. And then when when the lovely folks at the Weinstein Company pulled the plug on that and then said, Hey, but you owe us more movies, Rob was still hemming and hawing around it, but I don't know what to do next. And he started seeing these scripts floating around that were being thrown at these guys for the next Halloween. And he's like, my God, they're gonna they're gonna destroy my characters and John's characters like they're this doesn't do these things these characters service and so that was a huge part of why he returned for that one was not only yes there was the element of he still had a movie to make for them but more so it became about no we need I I need to make sure that Lori is cared for I need to make sure that Brackett is cared for and that he gets the moment that I wasn't allowed to give him in the first film and I need, you know, all these different things because he felt connected to it. And you, you really can't argue with that. And I see why he would want the same thing with this because the Devil's Rejects really, for a lot of people, the general audiences put him on the map cinematically. Mm-hmm. So he's going to want to revisit this. And these are close friends of his. And I read an, an interview with him where he's like, honestly, you know, we're not going to be around forever. And some of these guys are getting older and... I wanted another chance to work with them and, and you know, have this family exist one more time. So even mm-hmm. if it's the last one, it seems like it meant a lot for him to bring everyone back together to do this again. You know, it seems like a lot of his projects end up changing as they go. I mean, we all know, you know, Lords of Salem kind of took on a different form mm-hmm. the more it was filmed. Uh, you know, Recently, he did an interview where he mentioned that Three from Hell was supposed to be a very different film because it was supposed to be Baby, Otis, and, and Spalding still. Right. You right. know, a few weeks before filming, you know, Sid got really sick, couldn't be insured, had to be written completely different. Mm-hmm. And and I – the thing – like reading that, it, it makes perfect sense why Spalding's in it for very little. But with that being said, I think the end result, to me at least – is more satisfying than just another go around with those characters because right. it shows it shows how passing life is, mm-hmm. and you know maybe maybe I'm getting too philosophical about it, but I think that's the one thing that just stood out to me the most about Spalding's uh, death in the film. It shows how anticlimactic death is at times. Yep. You know these people these people that you are attached to these characters. You know, there's there's no big like string swelling and shootout kind of thing with Spalding's death. He is interviewed, he says what he needs to, and then news report, he passed away lethal injection. It's right. it's almost like very as a matter of fact, you know, it's it's very like, oh, this happened. And I, I think that that realism in life, I love seeing that in films. You know, I love seeing that. You know, like Six Feet Under is one of my favorite shows of all time. And I loved that 
every episode you got a different way that someone would die. Some of them were dramatic. Some of them were, oh, you know, guy reached out of his car and accidentally fell out and the car ran him over, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think Rob succeeds at bringing that realism into his films. And I think it's full on display in this one. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I, it's, it's a rare thing. And he he gets it and he's willing to put that on screen where a lot of filmmakers aren't and that goes back to my comment about dealing with grief and things like that it's it's these movies are not just about death his movies are very much not about death his movies are very much about everything surrounding it and the ripples afterward that's these are his forte maybe more than anything else and so he he brings people in that he trusts to deliver that. And the end result is going to be polarizing by nature because he's not pulling punches because there's no fucking point to pull punches. And I'm sorry, I'm swearing so much today. I don't know why. Uh, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I, there's no, there would be no reason for him to pull punches, but at the same time in this movie, there's really only that I can think of maybe one scene that's gratuitous in terms of gore, but the rest of it is a little restrained. Mm-hmm. And it, it's definitely you, has impact. You're definitely in the moment, and it is like wow. There are you know, stabbings where it's stab, you know, over and over and over things like that. But it's not blood flying everywhere and in a gratuitous movie in that way. So it's not necessarily exploiting the deaths of the people who die. It's 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 just it's part of the mechanics of this family that this happens. And Rob presents it in a way without romance. The romance. The romance is reserved for those quiet moments like you're talking about with baby talking to Otis. Like that's where there's a, you know, like a, the, the, that's where it turns into a softer element. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, you know, what I really loved is, you know, like I said, I, I, I thought it th- 31 was entertaining. I enjoyed it. But with that being said, it was, in my opinion, one of the cruelest movies he's ever made. It was just, unabashedly mean-spirited whereas this one i mean like like we've said quite a few times so far i mean there's a lot of bad things happening but there's a lot of like humanity to to the people doing it and the people that are getting it done to them i mean i don't think it's funny when you know that the the woman's mom's ashes are just kind of like casually thrown about and they're laughing about it like yeah. that's that was hard. That's I think that scene was the one that was hardest for me to watch, yeah. Because it's just like such a disregard for human life, mm-hmm. you know. But we also get those moments, you know, like I said, where you can almost feel like those characters, as bad as they are, know that it's about to be the end of the road for them. Not not because they're going to get shot or anything like that, but because they know that their time on this world is limited at this point. Mm-hmm. They're getting old. They're getting up there. Spalding died. You know, their whole family's dead. You know, baby's kind of losing her grasp. Otis doesn't know what he's doing anymore. You know, Foxy, God, that guy's. <laughs> I, I can't say enough great things about Richard Brake in this movie. Like, he, I think he injects such a, a youthful personality into the film. Yeah. Like, I, you know, and, and walking into it, when slowly, little by little, you know, people kind of realize that the three from hell label, it, it more, it applied more to Foxy than Spalding at this point. Yeah. You know, I, I read a lot of people kind of 
really skeptical of how Richard Brake would play into that dynamic. But I feel like there's such good chemistry between Brake and Mosley in this movie that it feels like he had been around the entire series. And Yeah, and his character is a little bit like Otis Toole, if you look at real-life serial killers in a way. Like, he's the slower one. He, he's, not, he's not articulate. But and he's kind of waiting for Otis's lead in a lot of situations. He's mm-hmm. willing to dive in on very indulgent things, and he gets he gets the same kind of joy out of this stuff that was present in Thousand Corpses for Baby and Otis, but that's a little less present here, especially for Otis. And I think that it's that natural aging process in him, like he's going to slow down with time. He just, I mean, the families people are falling away from it. And it's going to be exhausting. So it's, it makes sense that he wouldn't have that kind of energy. But I think Break, I agree with you, brought that to the screen. And he's great in anything. I was so happy, even like in Mandy, I'm sitting in the theater. I had no idea he was in it. And all of a sudden, there he is. I'm like, oh, my God, Bill Oberst. I yeah. was so happy to see a Bill Oberst in this movie. Like he's, he, that guy's one of the hardest working men in, oh, cin- yeah. in, in indie cinema, let alone horror. And to see him like this, I really hope that that his trajectory continues up too. But think about this though, that Richard Brake was really introduced to the world by Rob because he owned 31. Oh yeah. He, he really did. And he, it's a similar thing. I think with, if, if you look at, um, God, I just had the analogy, the connection, a movie that's completely made somebody. Oh, uh, if you look at Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. who would you say was made in that movie? Eli Roth. Not Eli. I. Uh, if you think about an actor who stole a scene, every scene. Oh, Fassbender. I, I, mean, mean, I mean, who would you think? I mean, I, I feel like bastards kind of put Roth on the map to people who didn't know his work. And I mean, Fassbender, I mean, he completely stole that stuff. Who, who are you referring to? I think of Christoph Waltz. Oh yeah, definitely. Because of of course he's been in a lot of things for a long time, but he became, he was on everyone's lips after Mm -hmm. anyone walked out of a screening. Oh yeah. Glorious bastard. So, so I think this is a similar thing where Richard Brake is. So Rob is not only giving actors that he has loved all of his life, like D Wallace and Bill and Sid, these guys, Clint, all these people work in screen time and treating them just like any other actor, you know, he's not needing to bring high profile people in, but he's also creating careers for people as well, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And he helped bring John five into the realm of film scoring, not for this one, but he creates he helps foster the growth of people and he brings people in and feeds them with what he's creating. And I think to me, as someone who's like such a soft heart, softy, that says so much about him and is so much why I, why I love him and have done so much on him in print and things like that as well is because I, I think he just genuinely is, he is so good to people that he works with. Well, he does that. And at, he also, like you said earlier, gives kind of a second win to a lot of people. I mean, right. one of my favorite parts of Three from Hell is Richard Edson. Like, yeah. oh my God, it's one of the funniest performances I've ever seen, especially in the car when you know, Otis gets in and Richard Edson's just like, 
you know, like he's begging basically like just grasping at straws to survive. And there's such an urgency to his performance that it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's uncomfortably funny. And I, I think that that's the one thing about three from hell, aside from the heart that I keep referring to that just caught me off guard is how funny it is. And I, I don't mean that in like, it's funny that they're doing awful things. I mean, there's just these moments that it's so uncomfortable that it, it slowly becomes humorous in a way. And I, I think that, to be honest, I think that Three from Hell is Rob at his very best as a filmmaker, not just a visual filmmaker, but story, writing, everything. You know, like, I, I seriously think it's his masterpiece. I really do. I, I'm excited to see how the tide turns on this thing and comes in as more people are exposed to it of course it's going to open up a lot more next month once it hits video mm -hmm. and i'll definitely be buying it at that time for sure it's going to be in the collection mm -hmm. but i i'm anxious to see how people respond to the film in a larger way because three nights one screening each night i mean this is a very limited audience that's getting eyes on this thing right now and so well, i hope that the the naysayers don't scare people away and that people are open up to it next month well, I was told, and, and again, I, I, I won't go into detail who told me, but I was told that the reason for the three nights is the studio that did it, I don't know if it's Liongate, Lionsgate or Saban that bought it, they hated the movie. They did not like it. They didn't like what came of it. They just wanted to dump it. And I feel like that's such a disservice to everyone involved. You know, it is impossible almost for an independent film to get wide release. But I feel like if Three from Hell would have got the same treatment that Rejects got or House and or any of the movies, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I feel like it would be a big hit. I, I feel like just limiting it to three nights, it's, it's, you know what I mean? Like during the week even. Right. You know, how, how many people go to the theater during the weekend? I mean, I feel like it's a movie that would find its audience even quicker if it was given a bigger release. And unfortunately, it is a three nights. But I do feel that with time, with, you know, Blu-ray and everything else, and, you know, VOD when it comes out, I feel like this will be considered one of his classics. I really do. He told me in an article once that I did with him, he said, everybody always hates the new thing. They look at the last thing and say, yeah, but I wish it was more like that. Mm -hmm. But they're forgetting that they hated that thing when it came out. So mm -hmm. at that time, it was the thing before that. And, it, and it, he feels like he's been trapped in this endless cycle with his music and his films where the new thing is always garbage until the next thing comes out. And then that last thing was great. And mm -hmm. that's that I know is is really frustrating for him. But in a way, if you think about this, so many movies that you and I adore that horror fans love found their life on video. They found, oh, yeah. they found their audience there. I mean, Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. You, just about any Carpenter, but these things can take a long time to marinate and then finally rise to the surface. You never know when or how, but I think that now more than ever with so many different platforms of access after this thing lands, not to mention the physical, which will give some great behind the scenes, I'm sure. Hopefully you did another commentary. I would love that. I just think that it's one of these movies that, that, that will grow once it has a chance to be in front of more people just by nature, because that seems to be how it works for him. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And I, I'm definitely looking forward to it being fairly evaluated by people instead of this kind of 
gut reaction to, yeah. you know, the yeah. thing. And unfortunately we live in a time where someone reviews the film and if it's a positive review, everyone tells them they're wrong. Or if it's a negative review, which I feel so infinitely bad for John Squires, who writes for Blade Disgusting. Right. He didn't he didn't like the film at all and wrote a review for it, you know, not you know, expressing why he didn't like it. And that guy for the last 24 hours has gotten crucified so badly for it. And it's it sucks that like we live in a time where you can't have an opinion one way or the other without people telling you that you're wrong for feeling how you feel. And like, I, I find it so hard to come to terms with that being the kind of time that we live in. It's, it's odd that, that art cannot be these days. Yeah. I, I think that I don't know that the conversations being had or anything new I think that the fact that we have immediate access all the time and that we're staring at these platforms all day, what do we each check our phone like 200 sometimes a day or something like that? And is what they say. And so it's the, the reason there's so much knee jerk reaction to this. And the reason these people are, are on there throwing this stuff out is just because they're bored and they have the ability to do so. And what used to be an audience or a conversation between two friends in a living room on a Saturday afternoon is now with the world. And so mm -hmm. the discussions open up and the people who feed on that stuff, I mean, it's just like, and I know you and I have both been in very poisonous relationships historically. Mm -hmm. And so, but the people who feed on a certain, like just like people, some people, feed on those who are offering them what they need. They're sort of like psychic and emotional vampires in a way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very similar to this. It's like moths to a flame where I think that, that people fall into the role of being contrarian or whatever it might be online, because there is an unaddressed community around that. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know what joy they get in it. I've never been one. I mean, I don't write reviews. And I never have because I don't, that's that's not my bag, and I think that there are a lot of people out there who do it very, very well. I, I admire people who are willing to to stick their neck out and be honest and not just try to catch the tagline on the Blu-ray when it comes out. Yeah. So so many writers are just chasing the hug on that. And, and so I love when someone's honest about it, but if you don't agree with someone, that's cool. I think that no, we have to just accept that that's the case. And just like with reviews of my work, documentaries and commentaries and stuff. I, I don't read them very much but as a rule, unless someone sends one and says, Hey, please read this or something Be, because to, it's up to the person on the receiving end, John Squires in this case, in, in the case of our discussion here, he has to figure out what that means to him. And mm -hmm. it's, it sucks that it happens, but it's going to happen. And so that's where we, and it's not even about having a thick skin. It's just about like being able to focus on what really matters because a, a thick skin means we're still paying attention to it and weathering the storm. In my mind, the negative stuff that's out there, and this is why I haven't been on Facebook and I'll never return to it for a long, I mean, I, I've been off of it for a long time and we'll never go back. The negative stuff, it, none of this matters to me. None of these discussions, cutting down filmmakers or whatever it might be, I just don't, it, I have better things to do and deal with. Life is hard enough and, and I can't, I'm not going to invest my time in that. I'm choosing not to. And I hope that John's doing the same. And I, I, I know that he will continue to 
speak the truth about what he feels about things because that's what's put him on the map. And you're the same way. Honest writers, honest people reviewing these things and giving you know attention to different movies, it's honestly a very rare thing now. And so for mm-hmm. those that do it, I applaud them and I applaud John for what he's doing. But I mean, it's, it sucks to say, but it's going to happen. I mean, you and I are yeah. both that we're dads and we've had to, we've had to settle sort of resign ourselves to a lot of some things happen. I mean, this yeah. is just one of those things online. Definitely. Well, man, I definitely appreciate you talking to me today about three from hell. I, Super excited about the chat. I am super excited for people to watch it um, and try to get this online as quick as possible. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully we have it up today. Uh, that if any listeners listen to this, please go see the film. Give them support. I mean, Richard Brake told me it's selling out everywhere. My theater I went to yesterday, it was about forty percent full. But, Mine was you know, we, Mine was wall. Was to it? Wall. Yeah. Oh, that, did you get the poster? Yep. Okay, because I, I read so many people like Heather Wixon and stuff, like the theaters that they that she went to and a bunch of other people, like they didn't know what they were doing. So a lot oh, of them didn't wow. get it, which is such such great artwork too. Yeah, it's cool. But, it's really neat poster. I love it. But man, I definitely appreciate and appreciate you in general. And uh, we're definitely going to have you back on the show for sure. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again for, for bringing me on for the chat today. I'm talking to no you. No worries. And uh, like usual, uh, where can people find you and your work? Um, Go to justinbeam.com. Everything is linked or sort of announced there. Also, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for my name, and that's B-E-A-H-M. And, yeah, I would love to hear from you, too, if you want to reach out by any of those means. You know, hit me up with some messages, start a conversation. We'd love to chat. All right. Awesome. Well, everyone, like usual, like, subscribe, share. Uh, Follow Justin's podcast, too. I am a huge fan of it as so many people are the Justin Beam Radio Hour, right? Did I get yeah. the title right? Yeah. I always mess Thank up you. that title, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really good. So, anyways, uh, have a good week, everyone, and we'll see you next time.